Ramble. Bada bing, bada boom. The doctor could feel everybody's eyes on him. They're all watching him intently as he's performing this stomach surgery. And it's not going well. I mean, the patient had been complaining of stomach pains, but it was not as easy of a fix as he thought it would be. The stakes were really high on this one. So not only is he risking the patient's life if he doesn't get this right, but he's risking his wife's life. This is his wife on the table and he's cutting her open to find out the problem. She would be dead by the next morning. And this man starts spiraling. He felt like he needs to save his wife. That's his whole job. That's why he operated on her. I mean, she couldn't be dead. There's just no way. He keeps having these visions that she's alive again. This is a sign, a message from God that he needs to bring her back now. So he goes out, has his wife dug up from the grave, brings his wife to bed, and he believed wholeheartedly that their love could bring her back. He started making love to her skull. Eventually, due to the decomposition, he would have to cremate his wife, but he kept a few of her bones. He kept a few of her organs that he continued to love in hopes that she would be revived. He would keep her kidney, her uterus, a couple of her bones in a jar full of olive oil that he kept in his trophy shed. The trophy shed consisted of dozens of teeth, private parts of both men and women, and later it would contain an arm, a fully amputated arm. This man was never certified as a doctor or a surgeon. He was a mad wannabe doctor running his own cult in the wilderness where he performed random operations on all of his followers. He believed in polygamy, amputations, torture, punishment, and that the apocalypse was coming. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMingoPodcast.com. There is an incredible book on this case, which I'm going to link. It's called Savage Messiah. I couldn't find an ebook of this anywhere, literally anywhere, Kindle, Nook, even just like the shady websites, I couldn't find it. I found it on Amazon. They have hardcover and paperback, and it's like $100 per book. It was kind of insane, but I will tell you, this is probably one of the most traumatic reads that I've had this year. It's called Savage Messiah. Um, It's written by two journals list viewer discretion is advised for this book and also this episode it's just a lot this case gets very graphic very quickly there are graphic details of amputations at home surgeries torture humiliation necrophilia essay literally think of everything horrible that one human can do to another and it's it's in this case So if you're not in a great headspace, I think it would be best for us to see each other again in a later episode. So go take care of yourself. Take a bath. Relax. I will see you on Sunday. And also, this might not be the episode to have on in the background if you're eating. So with that being said, let's get into it. Almost a dozen kids were brought in by authorities to be placed into foster care homes. They're placed into different foster care homes, and they had all been malnourished, abused, clearly, and living in the woods. Like, some of these kids had lived in the woods their whole lives, in unsanitary conditions, detached from society, technology, everything. They all had the same dad and different moms. CPS knew. They're like, We're going to have to work very closely with the foster care parents to make sure that the children are adjusting well to normal life. But I don't think anybody really understood how hard that adjustment period was going to be. Immediately upon taking in the kids, CPS starts noting very strange behavior. 
during the first meal that they had, the kids ate completely with their hands. Soups, mashed potatoes, everything. But not in the way that you would imagine. It's not like they were taught to use their hands to eat certain foods, but like they have never used or seen a utensil before. And the way that they're shoving food into their mouth, it, it, it came from a very primitive hunger. They crawled on the floors like animals. That's what was noted, not me saying it. So I'm assuming that it wasn't just like, oh, they're crawling, they don't know how to walk. But I'm sure it was a very specific crawl that must have alarmed the social workers. And when they weren't crawling, these kids would sit there just zoning out. The children were described as zombies. It said they never moved or uttered a sound. There was a two-year-old, you could put him on a couch filled with toys and he wouldn't move or make a sound. He would just sit there for hours if you let him. Sometimes after a few hours of that, they would just rock back and forth in a trance. The first night that the kids were taken in, one little boy stayed up all night chanting on beat, the devil's coming up from the ground, the devil's coming up from the ground, the devil's coming up from the ground. When the kids opened their mouths, they all had rotten blackened teeth. And once they finally did start talking and getting comfortable around the social workers, they start telling them of all the things that they had lived through. How dad would make all of them, including their moms, lay on the floor and he would urinate on their faces. Sometimes he would defecate on them and make them be human toilet paper rolls, have them clean him with their mouths afterwards. He would force them to consume each other's feces Dad would force them to all gather in the cabin unclothed and do adult activities and take turns with him. These are all his wives and their children, his own children, his own flesh and blood, by the way. Many of the kids were either full siblings or half siblings because of this. But they were having full-blown illegal parties with everybody involved. The social workers, they brought in a few dolls to ask the children, okay, like, can you, can you set up the scene and show us exactly what happened? One of the kids looked around and said, well, there's not enough dolls. There is one report that stated a kid was forced to take turns with their dad and their mom. The kids talked in great detail and the way that they told social workers everything, it was, it was as if they're explaining like, yeah, well, that's life. Every kid goes through that. Everyone does that. It's part of growing up. The kids described how dad would take all of his wives to bed and force them to compete for his attention. He would pit them against each other, make them massage him while they cheered him on while he slept with a different wife all in front of their eyes. It was incredibly graphic. And again, the kids had no idea it was wrong. One of the kids said she was tasked with raising the family goat. She said that she really bonded with this goat and that it was her only friend in life, really. And then one day, her father called everyone out to the shed. He was unclothed. He raised her goat in the air, disemboweled it, and showered in the goat's blood. It was one of the worst cases the social workers had ever heard in history. One social worker, Georgia Brown, who tried her best with this case, who was part of the investigation into the children and helped them kind of adjust into the foster care system, She ended up taking her own life later, largely because of the horrors that she saw in this case. So what did she see? Some say mind control can be broken down into like three distinct phases, right? The first phase is convincing. Then there's hierarchy and competition. Then there's full indoctrination of new beliefs. 
To make it simpler, phase one is like the game of convincing. These people are very busy convincing the subject that they don't know what's right for them, but you do. You're the only answer. You know how to help them. You you can give them purpose. You're convincing them that you have special abilities and that you are special. And if they follow you, they will in turn be special. And whether you're promising them salvation or the promised land, it's the game of convincing them that this is the truth. Then phase two is the game of hierarchy and competition to make these people feel accepted, but not really. Make them feel jealous, inadequate, have them fight for your love and attention. And it makes them not only feel closer to you and your beliefs, but it makes them feel like you are someone worth winning over. Then there's phase three full indoctrination. This is the scariest phase because at this phase, most cult leaders have full control over people's minds. You don't even need a reason to do things anymore. You don't need to prove yourself anymore. People will do what you want them to do just because you said so. And Rock Terrio from Canada was a master mind controller. He would go on to have led one of the scariest cults that we've ever researched. He liked to play prophet, God, messiah, mad doctor. He performed rogue operations on his followers, literally for the fun of it. He loved polygamy. I mean, this guy was terrifying. People were just dying around him. The way that he was able to grab hold of someone's mind with such a firm grip and have them do whatever he wanted. Imagine following someone to the point where you spend hours feeling with no painkillers, watching as they amputate your arm. You can run, but you don't. That is a different level. So let's get in to the Antel kids. But before Rock became a mad doctor cult leader, he was just some guy that owned a health clinic in Canada without any certifications on top of that, but a health clinic nonetheless. A lot of locals actually really loved his clinic. He focused on organic food, healing powers of holistic medicine. And there was always kind of this hint of religion, a hint of, oh my God, the apocalypse is coming under everything that he did and said during his early messages. Like people could get behind it though still. Eat clean, no drinking, no smoking, treat your body well, live healthy, your mind will be clear with the food that you intake. So his clinic starts gaining him followers. And I'm saying followers because people who worked at his clinic, they gave everything in their lives to be there. They sold their houses to fund the clinic. They lived at the clinic. They did not get paid for their work at the clinic. They're not just employees, they're followers. They just wanted to be around Rock Terrio. They felt like, you know, this guy has something special. He has a vision that nobody else has. And a good chunk of his group were women. And he was going to make them devote their lives to worshiping and serving him. And the first phase of mind control is the game of convincing. And Giselle was going to convince Rock to marry her. She felt like, you know, it's unfair. She said that she was upset because she knew Rock before he was loved and praised by all these women. She knew Rock before he was religious, way before he had this little health clinic. But now there's girls fleeing themselves at him and he's just going along with it. She's feeling like he's not rejecting them. Why is he laughing so hard at their jokes? What like what could possibly be so funny that he's grinning from ear to ear? And she just felt this pit in her stomach. It felt like she's losing him and he's just going to slip away. A lot of the girls were also younger than her, so that didn't help. Giselle finally worked up the courage to ask Rock if he would marry her. A week later, the whole clinic packed into a van to go watch them get eloped at a courthouse. It was quick and easy, like one of those in-and-out weddings. Once they got back into the van, Giselle thought, okay, 
good. I'm his wife now and everybody saw me get married to him. He's going to treat me like his one and only wife and everybody else knows not to mess with us. They climbed back into the van and Rock asks her, do you mind sitting in the very back row? He was going to sit in the middle row next to a few of his friends. All girls. Giselle nodded, climbed into the back, and for five hours, all the way home after her wedding, she watched her new husband flirt and tease the girls in the middle seat. And she would lean her head up against the window and cry. Rock must have heard, but he didn't care. And that was just the beginning of a marriage of literal torture. Later, when Giselle would fall pregnant, she decided it was time to put her foot down. She could not raise her child like this. With women everywhere, living with them full time, trying to woo her husband, spending zero time alone as a couple, but as like a 10-person group, Giselle is like, this feels like a commune. This feels like a cult, a polygamous family, which maybe she was okay with it until she got pregnant. But now, now she wanted that traditional family, white picket fence, the life that her husband promised to give her before all of this clinic shenanigans. So she turns to him and said, you have to choose between me and this commune. If you choose them, I will leave with our unborn baby. And if you choose me, we will tell the group to disband and everyone can go back home. Rock looked at her, weighed out his options, and then he punched her in the face. He punched his pregnant wife straight in the mouth. He knocked her off her feet. Then he dragged her by her hair into her room and locked her in there from the outside, kept her in there, no food, no water for two days. And he told her, this is the way things are. You're supposed to submit and it's supposed to be painful for you. And that's what God would have wanted. Giselle was convinced. From then on, Rock was openly sleeping with almost all the women that lived with them. He would impregnate almost all the other women and even bring multiple of them into his marital bed at once to have competitions of who was the best. Giselle was convinced that this is just what marriage is and that her husband should and be able to call the shots and do these things. The others were also convinced. This is what marriage is. This is what love is. So Rock started having all the employees, if you will, marry each other, even if they barely knew each other, had no attraction to one another. He's like, you're going to get married this weekend because people think we're weird. People think I'm like a polygamist. So you guys need to all marry each other. So we just look like a bunch of couples having fun. These were non-legally binding marriages. He didn't even have a license to perform actual marriages, but everybody took it seriously. He would have these group weddings where people would get married in the same day, just in a big batch. Some of the employees or the members were encouraged to ask their families to come witness, like, hey, look how normal my life is. Because, you know, there had been whispers that this this clinic was kind of like a cult. Rock wanted to prove everyone wrong. So these family members were invited to the church to join in on the celebrations. Many of the family members hated Rock and the clinic. They felt like our kids were so normal up until this point, And now, now they're living with a big group of people, basically worshiping this man that has no credentials to even have a clinic. They dropped all their friends, hobbies, family, everything that made them an individual. For who? For him? So they hate Rock. They hate the clinic. But they showed up to show their loved ones, we're still going to support you. We're here no matter what. And it was a really sad day. Um, they told the authors of the book that during the big batch weddings, the family of the members, they sat in the pews and they listened to Rock go on these unhinged speeches about how women's only job is to be obedient to men and do what they're told. And their daughters are standing up there like crying in happiness and they feel like, what is going on? 
a lot of them were seen crying in the pews, not from joy, but just straight up fear, fear for their daughters. And I mean, what could they do? It's not like they can pull them out. They would run back to rock kicking and screaming. So all they could do was hope that they would wake up one day, leave. And many of them would honestly get very lucky to even get out of this cult alive. A man walked into the clinic one day and he's in tears. He's super distraught. And they're like, how can we help you? The man is telling the clinic that his wife, Geraldine, she's only 38 years old. She's got leukemia, which is basically cancer of the blood. And he explains she's been staying at this hospital, but I don't know. I just can't sit around like I need to do everything I can to help her. I'm so desperate right now. Rock comes out and he talks to the man. And he's very authoritative, motivating, and the way that he's talking, it's like he already knew that Geraldine was going to be okay. It's very assuring. So compared to the doctors who keep telling him, well, we can't make any promises. We're doing our best. We're trying to see how she responds to treatment. Rock's confidence was comforting. Rock offered, why don't I go to the hospital? Let me go see Geraldine, see if there's any way I can help. When he walks into that hospital room, he immediately wrinkles his nose in just disgust, like he smells poo-poo, and he starts raging. He whips around and gets into a screaming match with the doctors, accusing them of just wanting to make money and pumping Geraldine full of drugs. He accused every single medical professional in that room, on that floor of malpractice. So just a reminder, Rock runs a health clinic with zero certifications or even a degree. But he's throwing out random words that make it sound like he knows what he's talking about. And Geraldine's husband is nodding along with him. Rock turns to him and says, even if it's not our clinic, I advise you to get Geraldine out of here if you want her to live. This hospital is doing more damage to her than good. They do not care about your wife. But I do. The husband is moved. He takes his wife out of the hospital, gets her off all the medication prescribed by her doctors, and pays the healthy living clinic to take her in. From this day forward, Rock says, nobody is allows, allowed to visit Geraldine other than her husband. Got it? Everyone's like, yes, understood. And he's like, not her parents, not her family, and definitely none of those malpractice scam doctors. Rock immediately put Geraldine, a leukemia patient, on a zero medication, zero procedure, zero medical treatment plan. He said that she didn't need any of that, really. She just needed him and organic food and grape juice. That was his treatment plan, organic food and grape juice. He literally puts that on the chart of a cancer patient. And it, you know, it went as well as you would imagine. Geraldine is deprived of life-saving treatments for her aggressive cancer, and she would very soon pass away. But this is just another game in his little game of convincing. So one day, Rock walks into the room. Geraldine is in there, and he's alone with her. He notices that she's gone. She's passed. So he walks out of that room, tears in his eyes. Everyone is circling around him and he tells them this very emotional story. She was slipping away and I revived her. I brought her back from the dead. I kissed her on the forehead. She was alive again. She was cured, healthy as new, no cancer. But in that exact moment, God came to me and told me, it's time. Let her go. Let Geraldine come to me. And I really didn't want to because, you know, we've all grown fond of Geraldine and we've kind of bonded with her. But I knew, I knew that she was better off being by God's side. And, you know, when God wants people, he should have them. It was Geraldine's time. The group was convinced. 
Rock was not just a healer, but he was able to resurrect people through God. He was able to convince a group of people that even though he failed to do what he claimed he could do, it wasn't a failure. Actually, it was even better. It was better than successful. Like it takes a very specific kind of person to be able to not only convince people of something like this, but want to convince people that they're able to resurrect people. Like who does that? Who even wants that? There's got to be something in Rock's childhood or his backstory that makes this make a bit more sense. But most of Rock's childhood is kind of a mystery. It's a random mix of what he claims was his childhood, what some neighbors claim was his childhood. Like we don't have a straightforward timeline. There are a few claims that I'm going to go over. Some say that uh, he wasn't able to walk until he was three and talk until he was six, which is pretty late. And we're not even sure how accurate this detail is and what it even really means. But when Rock did learn to talk, whenever that was, he was really, really smart. Like you would have to give it to him. Even if you hate this guy's guts, you would have to admit at that time when he's young that, you know, this guy is intelligent, but in a very specific way. So he's the type of kid that would go read up on a specific topic, right? Then he would go to dinner. Then he would casually force this newfound knowledge into the random conversation so you're talking about how you were in line at the store for so long and he would somehow twist and turn this to make this a conversation about the word quantum and how it comes from the latin word how much and it reflects the way that quantum models always involve something coming in discrete amounts and you're just like how does that have anything to do with what i'm talking about he didn't seem to have a genuine thirst for knowledge he just wanted you to know that he was smart that's all he really cared about Others that said that they knew him when he was a kid said he was very arrogant and he really liked to pity himself. Like this guy was a giant crybaby that complained about basically everything. If he had a sore throat, no, he didn't. He had a life-threatening throat cancer disease and he wanted you to treat him as such. He was the ultimate victim to everything in his life. He also lied a few times to his grade school friends about having terminal cancer. So there's that. But apparently... He'd also turn around and say that he had special healing powers and could fix people's broken legs. Rock would also later claim that his dad was super abusive throughout his childhood. This has been disputed by some neighbors. Some have confirmed it. Some have disputed it. But um, his favorite forms of abusing Rock, allegedly, were throwing him down the stairs and locking him in the cellar whenever he was pissed off. He was also apparently the originator of loving sick and twisted games, which Rock is going to love later on. But Rock's dad, allegedly, had this game that he would play with his whole family called Game of Bone, sometimes just called Bone. Premise of the game is simple. I mean, I probably wouldn't play it at home, though, but or anywhere. Uh, Rock and his siblings would sit around the kitchen table after dinner, and all of them would have steel-toed work boots on, laced all the way up, and they would kick each other in the shins until eventually all of them tapped out. Rock would say this was his biggest memory growing up, but other neighbors and family friends would deny that that ever happened. They said the Terrio parents were as kind as can be and would never make their eight kids do something like that. They had eight kids, yeah. The neighbors did notice Rock had some weird tendencies even as a kid. He dropped out of grade school at seventh grade and he spent most of his time studying the Bible, which he hated. Oh yeah, Rock's dad was part of this ultra-conservative Catholic movement known as the Union of Electors. They're really hardcore. Again, no judgment, but they believe that the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church should be present in every facet of day-to-day life. Even if you're not religious, they wanted it to be embedded even in the financial institutions. They basically said, forget separation of church and state. 
So they would go around in white hats, door to door, handing out pamphlets. And Rock was out there handing out pamphlets with his dad and he hated every freaking second of it. And he considered it just suffocating, which is ironic considering how he treats his followers later. But he said, you know what? It's just too much. I'm a teenage boy and I want to focus on the things that really matter. Girls, apparently and unfortunately, girls wanted to focus on him too. Yeah, I know. So to categorize Rock, he's not an overly flirtatious person, but he has these really intense blue eyes. He's got the aura of a natural born leader. That's what people who met him in this stage of life said about him. They said that he had this certain devious look to him and he always kind of spoke with a slight smirk. It was cocky, but it was somehow charismatic. One person said he had this way of staring hypnotically at you like he would make you feel like you have been transported to the center of the universe everything outside of that sphere just folded into insignificance he had that like command a room when they walk in type level of presence he was definitely a natural born entertainer like these are the compliments he was getting at this stage in life The author of Savage Messiah, who wrote a whole book on this cult, said he would walk into the bar and have people in stitches. He was a prankster. Natural showman, you could say. So by the time he's 21, he's changed his life. He's like, you know what? Forget religion. I'm not doing that. And forget my dad. I'm going to go doing my own thing. He starts exploring different Christian denominations. And then he gets married to his very first wife, 17-year-old Francine Grenier, which is pretty young. And this is really the only normal phase of Rock's life. I don't know if you could call it normal. I mean, it was kind of normal. So they get married. They rent a small apartment in Montreal. And Francine would give birth to two sons, Rock Jr. and Francois. Now, Rock would need money to start his growing family. And he starts making these little wood carvings. Ornaments, wood sculptures, wood figurines. He starts going door to door, selling them. They're not the most financially stable. But for a little while, it seems like they're a cute, happy family until he starts having these stomach pains. And he's like, oh my God, my stomach hurts. First it was a bellyache, then it was excruciating pain. And soon he's in a fetal position crying from the pain. He starts throwing up, he's not doing well. They get him checked out at the hospital. He has to undergo multiple different surgeries. Nothing is working. And because of the pain, Rock is a totally different person now. His family said he was unrecognizable, temperamental, argumentative, angry. The surgeries that he went through would actually worsen his condition. He was now diagnosed with dumping syndrome. I've never heard of this. Okay, this is new to me. So dumping syndrome is incredibly rare. It's typically not deadly, but it's it's an inconvenience and it can be painful and lead to vomiting, nausea, diarrhea. It's when the food moves way too quickly through your stomach and intestines. Hmm. So after all of his surgeries, Rock develops this fascination with medicine and surgery. He starts buying books and anything that he could find that dealt with human anatomy, which, you know, I guess isn't the worst thing in the world right now, but mixed with his self-pitying personality, he was insufferable to be around. He made dumping syndrome his whole personality. And after his few surgeries, Francine noticed a few weird changes too. Rock was not even a little bit religious anymore. Like when he married Francine, he wasn't as religious as his dad, but he was still a conservative man because that's how he was raised, right? He said that his wife was the prettiest when she would wear these long floor length dresses that would sweep the floor. But now he's like, get that off and wear this. He wanted her to wear mini skirts that barely covered anything, crop tops, no bra. Like it was, Francine was so uncomfortable. 
not only was she raised super conservative, but she's like, you know, what the hell is going on? Where's the husband that I used to know? This is such a sudden shift. During a family gathering, he even asked Francine's conservative parents, hey, you guys got a lot of land in your backyard. Do you mind if I start a nudist cult here? They nearly spit out their drinks, okay? Like, they're, what? But there was no going back. Rock had this newfound obsession with anatomy, sex, and drinking, and everyone thought, okay, maybe it's a phase, like a quarter-life crisis. But then he starts going on these business trips to sell his wood trinkets. He's like, I can't sell them in this town. I gotta go to the next town. And he would come back with no money, no energy, and suddenly no sex drive. Because it was never a work trip. He was just having intense affairs behind Francine's back. He spent most of his time and money on a woman named Giselle. Giselle LaFrance. And she would be very pivotal to today's case. It was a full-blown affair. He was showering her with gifts, spending money to be with her, making her believe that he was a victim in his marriage. Giselle said that he cried to her, like sobbed actually. She said he cried and he cried. He said that he was sick and nobody was taking care of him. He had cancer. His wife was always out with other men and she was a bad mother. Eventually, Rock's family home was foreclosed on and Francine decided to file for divorce and take their two sons. She's thinking Rock can go just rot in a nudist camp for all she cares. But he didn't. He just joined another church instead. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is a really, really big church. I think right now they have 22 million members worldwide. But I do want to clarify, the experience that Rock is going to have with this church is just from his local church. And I have a feeling that it might not be aligned with most of the Seventh-day Adventist churches, you know? So don't let this be the representation of this group of people. But Rock joined because it was different. So there's like two things that he's really intrigued by. First of all, the church focused a lot on the second coming of Christ. And he really loved the Bible's book of Revelations. So Rock loved anything that had to do with the end of the world, a final apocalypse, the battle of good and bad. He was mesmerized by those things. The other aspect was He really liked that SDA heavily emphasized vegetarianism and having a holistic lifestyle. So no smoking, no drinking, limiting processed foods. Rock was in deep. He starts bringing Giselle to these gatherings, forcing her to change her lifestyle out of nowhere. So they quit smoking, quit drinking, eating meat, and all the members of that specific church are so impressed by him. They're like, within a month, This guy has studied everything we already knew. I mean, he knows our teachings probably more than a lot of the members at our own church that have been coming for years. He's so passionate about recruiting other members. Wow. Eventually, within a few months, they have him teaching other members about the word. And at first, it went really well. He's passionate. He's charismatic. But then slowly, the older members of the church would go check up on his lessons and they would just get like sneak peeks of things. And it was weird. Rock would be in the room and they're thinking, okay, he's probably like teaching them about how processed foods is so bad for the body and mind, body and soul, that connection, all of that. But Rock is like, women are subhuman. Women must obey men. They are submissive. They are subservient to men. And if they are not, they deserve to be punished. Polygamy. Also great. The local church that he was attending was ministered. So the head person in charge basically was a woman who did not appreciate his teachings. So he was kicked out and he actually took a big chunk of people with him, all really young, around 18 and 24 years old. And this is what's crazy. Okay, I was imagining 18 and 24 year old men because the message that he's serving serves men. A lot of women. Yeah. 
he just knew how to win over a crowd. I guess he was just very compelling. In the beginning, he seemed open-minded, passionate, fun, and kind. He also spoke English and French. Most of his followers only knew French, but he knew both. And that just added another layer of like, wow, this guy is really special. He's really smart. How, wh- why do they speak French? Where where are they? Canada. So they have French-speaking oh, provinces. I yeah, see. But uh, Rock was also unemployed, which like nothing is wrong with that. But he would live in Giselle's apartment rent-free. And now he's bringing all these young followers to listen to him preach in Giselle's cramped living room. And all these young followers would hang out in her apartment bonding, sitting on the couch. They would spend the night anywhere in the apartment that had a soft surface. It was super uncomfortable for Giselle. But they all just wanted to be around Rock as much as possible. Giselle hated it. She said, I had to prepare the meals and look after the other girls as if I was their mother. Actually, I think some of them fell in love with Rock the first time they saw him. They touched each other a lot, stroking each other's hair and giving massages. I liked it, but I didn't understand it. It just wasn't the way that things were done in my mother's house. And then they started doing the same things with Rock. Caressing him, rubbing his shoulders, and oh boy... That I didn't like. I didn't agree with it at all. I was getting jealous, but I felt sure that he would never sleep with another woman. I mean, Christ, he's trying to be a pastor. He was teaching me about God and submission. And he said, if I truly loved God, I would open my door to all the women and try to help them. He would say, Giselle, if you don't help these people, God will remember. So Rock encouraged all of these followers to call him Poppy and Giselle Mommy. Yeah. Okay, so Giselle was kind of like the first lady of the house and Rock was the president. They start growing this core group of followers. And once they had about eight people like full time in this little commune, so they had other people, but they weren't like living at Giselle's apartment full time. Eight people. They decide, let's open up a business, the Healthy Living Clinic. And it was kind of like a rehab, but for cleansing, a retreat, if you will. They had this five-day program where you would be there eating only organic food, taking alternative supplements and medicine, and there would be these group therapy sessions. A lot of people said, you come out feeling renewed. The cult actually had a really good local reputation for people that weren't even religious. They would even host free vegetarian food drives for the sick and unhoused. But nothing in life is for free. Even doing charity work. Work is not free, right? How did they afford to keep the lights on and feed the less fortunate? Several of the members left their families, sold their homes, stole from their families, sold their cars, majority of their worldly possessions just to fund this clinic. One woman even handed her literal child into the foster care system because she was like, I don't think I can take care of my child right now and it's just another mouth to feed for the clinic. Wow. She didn't want the child to burden the group's life goals. What's her life goal? To heal the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But things are very quickly getting weird at this clinic. The group therapy sessions were bogus, but nobody could even feel it at the time. So Rock just loved to hear himself talk and he would give very questionable or vague advice. He was mainly using these group therapy sessions to understand everybody's weaknesses, insecurities, And outside of that, the clinic started advertising itself as the place to go when you have illnesses, even terminal cancer. They're doing this after they've already basically killed Geraldine, who had leukemia. So they're getting some business here and there, but most of the time, members were going out into debt to try and keep this place open. So Rock convinces them, we should go live off grid. Not that they really had any choices. They're about to get evicted. Some of the members are hesitant. They're like, you know what? But I really like living in the city. I don't think that I want to go live where there's no running water. And that just seems really extreme. This is too much. 
But Rock says, I really didn't want to have to tell you guys, but I saw something. He's like, okay, fine, I'll tell you. The other day, I went out into the woods for a meditative stroll to be with God, and I saw this white light peeking out from the clouds, and there was this voice that was carried by the wind, and the voice told me, the end of the world is coming. And I saw a glimpse, visions of violent storms. There will be hail the size of boulders, earthquakes, thundering, lightning. And the ground that I was standing on was sacred land. I have no doubt that this is the voice of God reaching out to me and warning me. The world is going to end and we have six months until February. Christ will be back and the apocalypse will happen. But we have been handpicked by God to be saved. As long as we live off grid in the isolated woods. The only way to survive is to relocate to the sacred land and live under my guidance. Three days after Rock's little vision, the group started exploring the base of a mountain that they would call the Eternal Mountain. This is not the real name of the mountain, but this is just what they call it because I guess it sounds biblical. But this place was as off-grid as it gets. They would have to hike for two days just to get this spot at the base of the mountains. And they chose it because it's next to this mini body of water that they would need to use for water and literally they're at the bottom of a mountain in the woods there's no trail and all they had in the beginning were tents it took them a full week to transport all their belongings and all their tools from the base of the mountain to where they needed to be from there the commune started building these very basic very uh primitive cabins unhygienic conditions like it's just intense it's just a logwood cabin They worked 17 hours a day just to get these cabins up. They didn't even bring much food or water because they were so isolated. They were barely getting any sleep. And of course, Rock is contributing zero, nothing to the work. The only thing that he's doing is inconveniencing his followers by making them hike two days into the town to grab him. Junk food. Do we know how many people were there? At this point, there was probably like 20. At the height, there was like 40. Wow. Yeah. And are they mostly women or... I would say in the beginning, it was more half, Mm. and then slowly it becomes more women, and then slowly it becomes majority children, because they just keep reproducing so quickly. Mm. Now, his whole clinic, his whole belief system in the beginning was based off healthy living and no processed foods, but that went out the window. Somehow he convinced them that he would need to eat Doritos and fried chicken for the love of God, literally for the love of God, and this man's love for junk food was unparalleled i mean they really did not have a lot of money the whole reason that they're moving into the mountains is not for the second coming let's be real it's because rock knows that they're out of money and they need to live off the land somehow but the man loves his lucky charms his cheetos he tells gabrielle this is one of the girls in the group that's going to be very important she was a nurse before this gabrielle go sleep with the local supermarket owners so that we can get free junk food he's basically trafficking her for a bag of chips and a few beers If any of the members complained or took too long of a break, he would confiscate their food and water for the rest of the day. And Claude, one of the male members, said, We were always hungry, always hoping that we'd get a fair share for supper, so we tried not to disobey him. Food was constantly on our minds. And this is part of the game of convincing. First, you convince them of this special mission that you have, this crazy vision, and then you deprive them of basic human rights. And when you're deprived of food, water, shelter, these things, you can't even logically think about, wait a minute, I don't think the second coming is coming. Instead, you're thinking, when's my next meal? But even Rock was in a bad mood, okay? 
he wanted that cabin fast. And so he was just coming down on these people. If they were not working as hard as he thought they should, he would say, why would you need to eat if you're not working that hard? He also had this genius idea. This is a guy who owns a health clinic. This is a guy that's going to play mad doctor in a second. He had this genius idea of feeding everybody salt. The idea being if they have a lot of salt in their system, they won't sweat as much. And he doesn't like when they sweat, which this is false. Okay. You actually sweat more when you consume a lot of salt. Never mind the fact that you're further dehydrating the members because they had water and food rations at this point and you're feeding them straight up tablespoons of salt. You could literally kill someone from salt poisoning. Yeah. And it takes more water to process salt. Yeah. So. And so this is, yeah, health clinic owner. And just the side of this, I'm sure is so ridiculous. So while the other members are sweating, bleeding from their hands, sweat drenching their clothes in the hot sun, Rock is sitting on a chair off to the side eating chips and cotton candy while going on these random rants about how the outside world their family members they are all sinners that don't want them to survive the second coming and they're trying to oppress us and hard labor and me is going to set you free sometimes after a really really long day of work he would make everybody squat on the dirt floor and listen to his nonsensical sermons he was increasing his drinking more and more now that they were isolated so his sermons they didn't even make sense at this point back at giselle's apartment at least they made sense and now they don't it's just rambles of a madman If anyone even looked tired or their eyes got a little bit droopy, Rock would whip out a four-inch thick wooden club, raise it above their head, and slam it down. And there would just be like this loud crack echoing through the woods. But the members were convinced that he was doing this for their own good. So just like that, the cabins are built and they it was just a big open room. It's like a very primitive cabin. They had curtains hanging from the ceiling to divide the giant room into smaller sections. The cult members, they start wearing homemade matching uniforms, dark green ankle length tunics for the women, beige tunics for the men. None of them were allowed underwear. And the whole purpose of the uniforms, Rock said, was to show equality within the group but Rock is going to wear something different, okay? So Rock is like, I'm going to wear a dark brown tunic made of nicer material that has gold embroidery on it. And he convinces the group to start calling him Moses instead of Rock. But we're just going to keep calling him Rock. He's convinced the group that he can resurrect people. God gives him visions and that the apocalypse is coming and the only salvation for them is to follow his lead. And so now we enter into phase two of the mind control, the hierarchy. There are two main aspects to this phase. He has to further his narrative of Armageddon, the end of the world, the apocalypse, the second coming, you get it. This is going to isolate his group from the outside world even more, make them fearful and anxious, more devoted to him because he is safety and security. And then within his own little system, he has to create rankings for everyone because he has to be at the top. So if everybody's equal, they could have equal conversations of, wait a minute, guys, some of the stuff he's saying isn't really making sense. But if they're constantly in a state of trying to up and get ahead of each other in the hierarchy, they're going to be jealous of each other. They want to fight for his attention and praise. It gives them a mission to do better within the group, to rank higher. And he starts doing that. He starts giving everyone new names, biblical names. Which is interesting because Rock at this point had basically abandoned the Bible. Like he's picking and choosing which parts serve his message the best and disregarding everything else as basically fake news. But he gives them new names and starts assigning them literal ranks. 
So for a while, Giselle had, because this is his wife, she had de facto highest ranking compared to all the other women. But that would not last very long. October of that year, so T minus five months before the end of the world, Giselle was six months pregnant and tasked with guiding the other woman to enlightenment. A lot of the women said, you know, even though we're technically married to some of the other men in the commune, I know that that's what Rock felt was best for us. I just feel lonely. I haven't been able to connect with them. It's not really a real marriage. And I think I yearn for that sort of connection. So Giselle goes to her husband and is like, we got to help these girls. They're so lost and they feel so empty. And so Rock is like, okay, I'll help them by sleeping with them. Giselle found out that while everybody was out working, including herself when she's six months pregnant, Rock and another girl named Nicole were in the cabin doing it. She was so pissed off, she bolted right out of the cabin, started running into the woods. Rock ran after her, threw her on the ground, strangled his six-month pregnant wife, and he screamed, my name is Moses and I am your master. You will obey me. And if you don't do what I tell you to do, the Lord will crush your skull. He didn't stop until Giselle promised to come back to the cabin. And she really didn't have a choice. Her standing in the hierarchy was about to change. Rock started impregnating all the other women and they were just in like constant states of pregnancy. Sources vary on how many children Rock ultimately had, but it's generally accepted to be somewhere between 26 and 30 kids. He also started unofficially marrying all the women in the cult. He did it openly and there was nothing a single person could do about it. And one of his favorite things to do was pit the wives up against each other, make them fight for his attention and love. I mean, they would point out every mistake that the other wives made to rock so that he would physically punish them. And then they would be seen as the favorite. Like everyone's fighting to be the brown noser. They went over and beyond trying to please him. Some of them would even give up their own children if Rock wanted them to. There were only two women in the commune that he did not sleep with. One of them was a woman named Maurice. Now, Maurice was the only one that hated being there. She was not there willingly. She joined because her husband Jack was in the cult. So she's like, okay, my husband and my kids are here. So what am I supposed to do? And she was constantly begging him, like, can you take us back to civilization? Like, we can't live in a cabin in the woods with our kids in these unsanitary conditions. She didn't even particularly find Rock's message compelling, kind of thought that he was a creep. She would naturally become the lowest rank in the hierarchy for the sole reason that she saw through Rock's bullshit. And she was the scapegoat for Rock. Something goes wrong? Well, of course it's Maurice's fault. He starts pulling her husband, Jack, closer and whispering in his ear nonstop that Maurice was on the other side. She has a birthmark on her stomach. Rock was convinced that the birthmark resembled the number 666, the devil's number. For that reason, Rock told Jock that he had to move Marisa away to her own little dingy shack away from the group. She can take care of her two kids over there that aren't fathered by him because Rock only likes kids that are his. And she's influenced by the devil. He also forbid the two from sleeping together and he would actually egg on Jack to beat his own wife and he would say things like, you don't know how to treat a woman like your wife. And the whole thing was really bizarre. Members said that Jack would beat his wife, Maurice, and then constantly glance over at Rock for an approving nod or a smile. And then one day, Maurice waddled into the kitchen. So she's heavily pregnant with Jock's baby. She got pregnant before Rock forbid them from being intimate anymore. So she's like six, seven months pregnant. And she sits down, eats her small stack of pancakes on the plate. Barely enough food for one person, definitely not enough food for two people. She gets up, grabs a few spare pancakes left on the counter, 
They're like tiny little pancakes. They're not even yummy. She's starving. And while she's eating, Rock walks up to her, punches her on the side so hard he broke two of her ribs while she's pregnant. Maurice falls to the ground in pain and Rock just stands over her, soaking in her agony. He never said that she could have more food. So she deserved the punishment. This point, Maurice had enough. She starts begging her husband, Jack, like, we gotta go. We cannot be here. I can't do this anymore. Jack goes and tells Rock what his wife is thinking. And Rock is like, oh, perfect. I have been itching to teach somebody a lesson. Bring your wife to me immediately. He gets the couple in front of each other and hands Jock an axe. It's only fair since she's your wife that you are the one tasked with disciplining her. Jack is like, I don't think I follow what you're saying. Cut off her toe. Jack immediately turns pale, ghostly white. He starts shaking his head, backing up from the axe. But Rock walks up straight into his face and smiles. And he's amused. He's like having fun with this. He says, what are you? Insert homophobic slur. Don't you have balls? If you want to be a man, you got to teach your woman a lesson. Jack starts crying and Rock tells him, well, if you don't cut off one of her 10 toes, I'll just chop off all 10 of her toes. Is that what you want? Jack felt like he had no other choice. Maurice knew that she couldn't outrun them. She's heavily pregnant. They're in the middle of the woods. And she had seen what happens to members when they're attempting to run and get caught. So she's forced to lay down while Jack takes an axe, her own husband, and slams off her pinky toe. And Rock says, oh, a new rule. You two are forbidden to talk to one another unless I'm present. That goes for everyone in the commune. No one is allowed to talk to anybody else unless I am present. And to really solidify the hierarchy and rankings, Rock played games. He basically created his own torture Olympics out in the woods. Gladiator level games where he would torture the group physically and psychologically. Rock was a sadist. Like there's no other way to put it. He loved putting people up against each other, playing mind games. And he really loved unique ways to torture people. He liked getting creative with it. He would go out into the dirt and draw this big square and he would have his followers wrestle inside the square naked. It was like a fight club atmosphere for his own entertainment. He would give them three minute intervals to just pummel each other while he watched. Or he would instruct one person to get on the ground and the rest of the group would just jump that person. If he didn't have the energy to watch, he would force his members to get naked and just stand in the icy snow for hours. He would hand out knives to every single person except for one. And they would say, okay, we're going to go kill this person now. Run into the woods. We're going to find you and stab you. And right as they're about to be stabbed to death, he's like, just kidding. It's like he loved this power. The last second he would say, just kidding. I can do whatever I want. Sometimes he would come up behind his followers and douse them with boiling hot water and then force them to sit on stoves that were on. He also really enjoyed humiliation. He would have all of his members lay down on the floor and he would urinate and defecate on them, force them to eat each other's feces and dead mice, force each other to be human toilet paper rolls. He pulled out half their teeth with pliers, forced them to engage in group adult activities and sometimes including all the offspring. So moms, kids, dads, everyone. It's claimed that he made one of the members engage in bestiality at one point, which is the act of explicit activities with animals. They were told to smear each other with um, other excrements. And if you're like 
how? Why? Like, how are they okay with this? Rock convinced them that he didn't want to do any of these things. He didn't want to make them do any of these things. By nature, he hated violence. It was against who he was. But he was a messenger, a vessel for God. And God was very mad at them. After these crazy torture sessions, he would run outside the cabin, fall to his knees dramatically, and he would cry, God, please stop using me as a vessel. And the group felt so bad for him. They felt like, you know, we have to endure this level of torture because when the world finally ends, we will have proven ourselves to God and we'll be God's chosen ones. And technically, he's just whipping the sins out of us. To them, torture was purification. This was not abuse. This was cleansing. To show you how intensely they believed in this, one of the followers wrote a letter to Rock after a particularly brutal night, and she was brutalized as well. She wrote, Good day, Moses, my master. I would have liked to have talked to you yesterday evening, but I think it's preferable to write these things down rather than say them, for fear of talking too much. I'm going to talk to you about the last fit of anger that your master exercised through you. I really believe that it did not come from you, but from someone much higher. For my part, I really believe that you were possessed by a very powerful spirit. That's what I saw in what you did. The throwing of the knife, shooting us, the harm done to mommy. My eyes saw things that went beyond them. I am very well and very happy to belong to the real master, who himself belongs to the only master of life, God. Love, Solange. Solange is reassuring Rock that they all knew that he didn't want to abuse them, that it was God's doing through his body. He was just a vessel. He was a messenger. And he hated it. That, to him, was his own torture. Everyone was walking on eggshells around Rock. They didn't know what was going to set him off, what he was okay with. To give you an example of how terrified they were, they would write letters to Rock and they called him Pappy and they would apologize literally for eating too much, being hungry, not being pretty enough, not being skinny, talking too much, literally everything. One letter reads, Hello, Pappy. I'm writing to you about what you said on the subject of nutrition. It is very true that I nibble, a damnable fault that I will never again repeat. I ask that you forgive me. If it is stealing, I did not realize. It is my fault that causes my plumpness. I do not want to be a fat and plump servant that is too ugly next to the man that you are. I will not repeat these actions. I wish to be a true servant to you, master. Alert, vigorous, and with a clear and lively spirit. And, well, balances to serve you every moment of my life. Thank you, Poppy. I love you. Another reads... Adored Poppy and well-loved master, I am happy about the lovely family that you have formed and have allowed me to join. I am slime. I am less than nothing, and I beg your pardon for the errors of my flesh. I love you, Poppy, and I will love you eternally. Another one would read, Dear Poppy, I feel happiness belonging to you. I thank the Eternal for giving you the breath of life. You never make mistakes. If you were not here, where would I be? I laugh because I love you. I cry because I love you. All my joy is to be forever close to you and give you what you desire. Another, My master, my king, you are the most handsome, the greatest, the best loved of the kings of my heart. And these were written to Rock after he murdered a child. The newest person to join the cult after they moved into the mountains was a man named Guy Veer. Now, Guy had a history of depression and mental health problems, and he sought out the group. So he had seen Rock on TV. 
Yeah, because they're doing like TV interviews. We're going to get into that. He saw Rock on TV talking about his prophecies. And Guy was like, I love this message. So he trekked through the woods to find this cult. And he was like, hey, can I join you guys? And Rock is very intrigued by this guy who just like came out from the woods. How did you find us? What? This is weird, right? He starts taking him through all these random tests to see if he's worthy of being allowed in. He passes, but Rock is not satisfied. He makes it very clear to the group that Guy is not their equal. He is allowed to join the group, but he will live in the storage shed. He will not be allowed to celebrate with us. He will only get one meal a day. He will also be the new designated babysitter of the animals. That's what he called them. So remember how I said that Rock had a lot of kids with a lot of different women in the cult? Mm-hmm. Well, there were a few kids that people had brought into the cult that were either like Maurice and Jack had a few kids. And then some of the moms had brought in kids that weren't rocks. Mm-hmm. And he called them the animals. Wow. He literally hated them. He would beat up them whenever he was bored. He told everyone that they were nothing but a waste of space, extra mouths to feed. So they had to be useful somehow. And they were controlled by the devil. So he had to beat the devil out of them. So he says, Guy, you're going to go watch over them. Not because I think you're a good babysitter, but because you're not. That's the whole point. That was his whole point. He's like, Guy seems unhinged mentally, so you get to go watch the kids. He chose the person that would do the worst job at watching, quote, the animals. So March 23rd, a month after the Great Disappointment. Yeah, March 23rd. Did you get that? The world did not end. The world did not end in February. But Rock was like, you know what? You know why the world didn't end? It's not because I'm not the Messiah. It's because God's time system and the earth's time system aren't the same. So I got to spend the next few months working out these time calculations. But you're still going to die unless you follow me. So I'm just saying. Rock was excited, March 23rd, and the whole cabin was going to be decorated. They were going to have this huge celebration because do you remember Rock's two kids with Francine when his life was kind of normal, right? Mm-hmm. Rock well, Jr. Yeah, Rock Jr. and Francois, they were, they've not gotten older. They're eight and 10 years old. They were both going to come and live with Rock. So they had little stints where they would come and live with Rock for a little while and then they would go back. At one point, Rock had basically kidnapped them to live in the commune. And when they were sent back to Francine each time, she noticed that they were just uncontrollable. Like they were malnourished. They were showing crazy signs of abuse and they were acting out. And so Francine is like, I can't do it anymore. Go back to your dad. So they're going to officially come live with Rock for good. Yeah. And he loves it. And he's so excited. He got them special tunics to wear because this is his full flesh and blood. I guess his first two sons, they're like his heirs. And yeah, it's going to be a whole thing. In the hierarchy, his sons, these particular sons are above all others. I think it probably has to do with the fact that their mother was not in the commune. Because Mm -hmm. if one kid in the commune is favored over the other, then the mom would kind of get de facto higher hierarchy, I'm assuming. So I guess this was a way to like show everyone in the commune, see? You guys are losers. Look at my kids. Anyway, that day, everyone would be celebrating except Guy Veer because he would be watching the animals because they're not invited. So they would stay in the storage cabin and just stay quiet for the rest of the night. And the rest of the hierarchy, they would enjoy the celebrations. Now, there are two versions of what happened that night. The first version is that while everybody was at the party, two-year-old Samuel started crying, disrupting Guy's sleep. Samuel is Jack and Maurice's baby. Guy wakes up super pissed, starts freaking out, starts screaming at two-year-old Samuel, which only makes him cry harder, and that resulted in Guy punching Samuel four to five times in the face really hard. 
The first version claims Rock and the others found out about Samuel's injuries the next day and just wondered why Samuel suddenly couldn't swallow food, why he couldn't sit up like he normally did. And they said that Samuel's head just kept lolling back and forth on his neck and his private parts were swelling up. So Rock decided out of the goodness of his heart that this baby probably had a UTI, could not urinate, and he took it upon himself to create an incision with no medical experience, took out a pair of scissors, snipped away at the private parts to let urine come out. And sadly, Samuel would die despite Rock doing everything to save Samuel's life. Then there's version two, the much more likely version of events. It was told by Giselle and the version is in the book Savage Messiah. Now Giselle said, yes, Samuel's face was beaten and bruised the next morning, but other than that, he was fine. But out of nowhere, Rock announced that Samuel needed to be circumcised. So he grabbed a cotton swab, poured rubbing alcohol on it and pressed it into Samuel's mouth like a sedative. Then he went to perform the operation. Samuel did not receive any painkillers. He was in excruciating pain in the last moments of his life, but he did not die from the operation itself. His cause of death was actually from alcohol poisoning from the swab in his mouth. Wow. So for two years, baby Samuel had known nothing but misery and the feeling of being unloved and hungry. And then he was killed in like the worst way possible. When Maurice and Jock found out about their son's death, it said that they paused for a brief moment before resuming their work. So again, we don't know if this is because they knew any sort of emotion would have brought on more torture to them and potentially other of their children because they had a few more kids or if they were genuinely at a state where they were so detached. It's unclear. At dinner, Rock offered to help burn Samuel's body to keep wild animals from picking at him. Maurice and Jack just nodded and said nothing else. And everyone else went back to normal as if nothing had happened until six months later, the trial. Rock woke up and had his wives dress him in his best, Sunday's best, black tuxedo. It was the big day. He was going to watch Guy take the stand and plead for his life to not be found guilty of Samuel's murder. Yeah, Guy had been arrested. Guy pled not guilty, and it was his job to convince the jury to spare his life. So after an hour, the jury comes back with a unanimous verdict that Guy was found not guilty by reason of insanity. What? what? Rock stood up in shock, and he was pissed. Rock was like, how can you not see how guilty this guy is of killing Samuel? And he pointed at the jury, which were his children. And then he pointed at the prosecutor, Giselle. And then the coroner, Gabrielle. This guy is having mock trial. And he screamed, not good enough. He must be castrated. The jury went back to vote on the punishment of castration. They came back 7-3 in favor of castration. All the people that just voted for not guilty by reason of insanity, now with Rock's urging, they were out for blood, literally. So Rock turned around and it said that he was able to turn on his charm and sympathy like that. He walks over to Guy and he tells him so nicely, remember all the headaches that you were complaining about? Guy's like, yeah. Well, that's from your excessive love and passion for self-fulfillment, if you will. It's also why you're having respiratory issues. They're all connected. Rock was encouraging him to get castrated, almost building this new vision for Guy. He's saying, right now, you're the bottom of the barrel. You are basically a slave in the hierarchy. But if you're castrated, you would still be kind of a slave, but more of like a eunuch. And that's better than being a slave. Marginally better, right? So eunuchs typically are castrated servants and they are 
a bit more trusted by rulers to not have strong private interest. Basically, you have no family. You probably won't be king because everyone knows that you're a eunuch. You don't have romantic ties, typically. So how can you betray the king? That's a very casual gist of it. But Rock is like, think about it. You could be a eunuch and it's going to be better for you. Guy is hesitant, but Rock takes that as a yes. He hands him a piece of paper to write, I consent to being castrated and has him sign it. Yeah. Okay, Guy signs it and Rock has him lay down on the kitchen table. Gabrielle, get the tools. The tools are an elastic band, a razor blade, a magnifying glass, and a pair of tweezers along with rubbing alcohol. Rock ties up Guy's parts with elastic and just slices everything off. And it's not even a clean slice. It's like a back and forth slice. Wraps it in a Kleenex and walks off. Guy is in so much pain. He was forced to do salt Water compresses every 20 minutes to make sure it didn't get infected. And he never complained about another headache ever again. He survived. Yeah. Wow. So at this point, Geraldine, the patient with leukemia, had died. Another member who had MS um, also ended up dying. This was earlier on. And now Samuel is dead, baby Samuel. And Guy has been castrated. Like, there's a lot going on in this group. And you would think that if this is how they're living out in the woods, it would be in their best interest to just keep quiet and not make any noise, right? But Rock was interviewed by Radio Canada one day. And this is around the time of the Jonestown Massacre. So a lot of people are on edge about cults and how deadly they can be. And the minute the police catch wind of this little commune in the mountains, they're watching them like hawks. But there's really nothing they can do about it because technically they're not breaking any laws. So after the radio interview, the police are able to bring in Rock and and one of his followers, Claude, for psychological evaluations. This interview was enough proof for the police to be like, "Mm, we don't know if this person is unhinged. So by law, we can have them evaluated. The psychologist said Rock has mystical delusions that could point to schizophrenia, but he is not a current danger to society or himself. So legally, they cannot keep him involuntarily. It is not a crime to have mystical delusions. So the police are just forced to let him run back into the woods. Like the little freaking menace that he is. There were other small reports made to the police about the group. Rock would fail to pay businesses for goods and services. Some of the group's family members called the police to request wellness checks, but the police couldn't really do much. Like, they needed a very strong reason to raid the place. And they got it when Rock went on another radio show. So, like, think of a cult leader just, like, doing pod interviews nonstop. Like, what? And in the interview, he's going on and on about his prophecies and how the world is ending. And the police are like, "Okay, now we can raid Eternal Mountain. He's talking about the world ending. He's not even just talking about how they're living off grid. Ten police officers and a helicopter barge into Eternal Mountain. And this part is really sad. Parents of some of the cult members were flown in via police helicopters to convince their children to leave the cult, to come back home. But they were met with a cold shoulder. One of the moms of one of the members was actually sprayed with bear spray, which is worse than pepper spray. Wow. Yeah. Like they had been brainwashed to the point of genuinely hating their own families. The place was raided. Rock was arrested for obstruction of justice. He went through another psych evaluation where doctors had mixed diagnoses of his mental health. One doctor said, yeah, this guy has schizophrenia for sure. And then another doctor was like, this man is a nice person and society is so judgmental. The whole time during that psych eval, Rock was turning on his charm, telling the doctor, I'm actually a savior. 
Not in like the prophecy Messiah kind of way. That's silly. But in the sense that these are all kids that were getting into and going off in the deep end and I saved them. I put them on the right track, teaching them hard work, hard labor, how to eat well, how to take care of their bodies. We're just a group of lost souls that found each other and we're making a home together. The doctor went as far to describe Rock as a renaissance man, saying that he was bright, inquisitive, and had a sensitive nature. So basically, Rock got off with a slap on the wrist because of this doctor's findings, and the media starts running with it. They start calling Rock the mysterious gentle mountain man. Okay, so I think also there's like a trend in media. And at that point in time, there was a trend of like, we shouldn't discriminate people because we don't believe in the same things that they believe in, which is, I don't think it's a trend. I think that's a really good value, right? But they were like kind of going off the deep end on it. They were like, the man is being discriminated against because he doesn't fit into societal norms. He and his group just want to be one with nature. And technically, Aren't we all brainwashed to a degree? Aren't we all living in this disgusting, brainwashed, capitalistic world where everything is about mass production and technology and they are so misunderstood? It's crazy, but around this time, the Eternal Mountain, or they called them on the media, the Holy Mountain family, became a bit of a tourist attraction. People liked their quaint log cabins and medieval-looking tunics, so every single day, about 75 to 100 tourists would try to hike into the mountains to find them and just watch them from afar. What? Like they were circus animals. Oh my god. Yeah. But that's not to say that everybody just loved the cult and couldn't get enough. There were a lot of skeptics, including one journalist by the name of Debbie Villica. She said that she trekked through the woods to try and get an interview with the commune. And when she got closer, they started shooting at her in the woods. So she was like, stop shooting. She finally emerges from the thick woods and she sees all of Rock's wives just super pissed off at her. And this is fascinating because most sources describe Rock's wives as being very weak and timid, mild-mannered. And while I can agree with their assessment, it's fascinating how much they're willing to do for Rock. So when the reporters get there, they see them as a threat to Rock. So they become really nasty, angry, just mean. And they keep yelling at her like Rock is going to be upset. Now, Debbie had come with another reporter and they end up feeling like, "Mm, we got to do something about this, right? They burst into one of the cabins where all the kids are. There's like 12 small kids. And Debbie was so freaked out. She said there's 12 pairs of eyes just staring at her and none of them felt human. Like it's dead silent. Not a single kid is moving, talking, fidgeting. And there's infants in this group. It was weird. It was, they were so still, it was odd. Before Debbie could interview the moms or ask questions rock comes in through the door and offers to give debbie a tour and it just all felt like a show debbie said his way of speaking was just so philosophical using all these grand metaphors he gave debbie this long-winded philosophical explanation of why things were the way things were and he said if you go downstream the waters are muddy from people walking through it drinking from it messing it up but if you come up to my source of the river it is clean and by coming to the source you have come to me and you have come to the truth What does that even mean? Debbie was not impressed. She thought this is just one big con man. He would say really self-pitiful things like, I have chosen this way of life. I know I am destined to suffer. Any person who believes in something with his heart that is different from others will suffer. Debbie is like, yeah, yeah. Suffering by having a bunch of wives worship you and do all the chores. So she asks, and the truth is you need to have multiple wives in order to be the source of the truth. These are not conventional marriages. The women love me and I them. And the babies, they are a result of our strong love for one another. 
During interviews, Rock would do this thing where he would sit on one of those rocking chairs and he would have one of his one bajillion kids hop onto his lap and say, I love children. He would say this, which I that's alarming when people say I love children. I'm like, mm, no, you don't. Or you do for a weird reason, because it's just like a very odd thing to state. Like, I love children. Sir, you're in a cult. That's what we're investigating you for. He talked about how his wives are such a big part of his life. And all of this is a mutually agreed upon decision between all of them. And he said, in fact, as we speak, there are three more babies on the way. And we plan to deliver them through natural birth on our land. I love my current seven wives and they love me. It is natural. Babies come. There was also an eight-year-old that lived on the commune and she was not, I believe she was Maurice's daughter, right? So she's eight, she's not Rock's daughter and Rock briefly talked about how he was gonna marry her eventually. And the journalist asked like, at what age? And he just smiled. And a lot of the interviews, not just with Debbie, but later with other reporters too, most of them were done in English. None of Rock's wives knew English. They had no clue what was being said about them and the whole vibe was just very unsettling. Debbie did not believe a single word that he said. There was not much anyone could do about it until Guy escaped. Guy is the one that was castrated, that was involved in Samuel's death. He escaped. Even after his castration, when he was promised that he would be treated better as a eunuch, he wasn't. He was regularly jumped by the group and like doing all this dirty work. So he runs out. He tells the police that there's a dead baby in the commune. And he didn't describe in detail the truth. He said that the baby was kicked by a horse and died because I guess he was scared that he was going to get arrested. Now, it was enough for the police to raid the whole place. Rock and six other members were arrested. Most of the children were placed in temporary protective custody, but the group was calm. They showed the authorities the paper that Guy signed consenting to castration, and they all had the same story. Samuel was assaulted by Guy, and that's how he died. They even told the cops about the mock trial, and that's, you know, why he was castrated. It's honestly unhinged that they were talking about it so casually, the authorities would later say, it is unnerving how everyone in the cult seems so uncaring. Like no one was shaken up, remorseful, embarrassed, or even upset by what they were talking about. Gabrielle would later say, you know, at the time we were no longer human beings. We could not even think properly because what you go through is fear. Second after second, minute after minute, hour after hour, for years, you stop becoming human. Do we know how long they're in the woods for? Yeah, for years. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of them, well, each member leaves at different points, but it's complicated because they're going to get arrested and then they're going to go back into a different set of woods. Wow. But some of them would be in the woods for like a decade, living like this for like a decade. Yeah. So they were tried in the real court system, not a mock trial. And seven members of the cult were found guilty for the death of two-year-old Samuel. They were found guilty of a lot of other charges as well. Obstruction of justice for burning Samuel's body, child neglect for the children at the commune, bodily harm with the intent to mutilate Guy. And for the next few years, Rock would be imprisoned. Their cabin in the woods would be destroyed. They would all be evicted. And everyone thought, okay, this is it. This is the end. Horrible, but this is the end. But no, the commune stuck by Rock's side. They rented out apartments near the prison and they would visit him as often as they could. Giselle took on the role of de, de facto leader, head. She worked on keeping everyone in town, everyone in the apartment, maintaining their support and morale for Rock. Rock would constantly call them to remind them of how much she, he loves them and he can't wait for them to be reunited. And this is God testing them. See, that's a trend with all these religious cults. Arrest is a test. 
arrest is not um, a testament to guilt or a crime being committed. It's like, can you get through this? You have to get through this to prove that you're someone special. He gets out in about two years, which is insane. That's literally nothing for the charges that he was facing for like the crimes that had happened. He reunites with his members and he wants to find a new sacred land in a plot of land next to um, the Burnt River. It's in Ontario. It's 200 acres of property. So Rock and his 22 remaining followers. So prior to this, there were like 40 of them. Now it's like 22. Three men, nine women, 10 kids. They head to another isolated off-grid location. And side note, while all of this is happening, again, the apocalypse came and went. And like these people are still at this point so indoctrinated to the point where they don't see the truth. Now we enter into phase three. This is when they get to their new isolated home. This is the point of no return. This is the scariest phase. This is when it's just full indoctrination and Rock can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants with no reasoning. He starts his game of punishments. This is when he doesn't need to justify anything. He doesn't even have to act remorseful afterwards. He stops all of that. What he really wants to do now is play doctor. So side note, the cult name, the Antel Kids, actually comes about around this time that they moved to the Burnt River. They were busy building another cabin structure out in the woods, and Rock is sitting there eating junk food. And all the members, including women and children, are scrambling to make these cabins. And he thought it was so funny. He thought it was really hilarious. He said, they all looked like worker ants putting together a colony, like scrambling around. So he dubbed them the Antel Kids. The group built the cabin, made their own wooden tables, bed frames, chairs. I mean, this commune was definitely a bit more elevated. They had a cellar under the cabin where they stored vegetables. They grew corn and potatoes. They had a wood stove and oil lamps around the cabin. They designed jackets with large interior pockets so that they could go into the town of Somerville and steal whatever they wanted, including meat and processed foods. Again, things that they started hating in the beginning of the cult. Nobody in Somerville knew who these people were and what they did in their past commune. And Rock decided that they would open up their own little bakery to make money. So they started selling pastries and fruit. And it it was kind of cute, I guess, to outsiders. He named it Ant Hill Bakery. And from the outside, the locals just thought, aw, like what a cute bakery of a bunch of harmless hippies who are just trying to sustain a livelihood off grid. So now with the new cabins built, a new business that can at least feed them, Rock is getting bored. He brings back Torture Olympics full force. He's constantly beating the kids. He would single out random kids, usually the ones that he didn't father, and sometimes even his own kids. For whatever reason, he would just hate one of them randomly and say, this one is marked by the devil. It got so bad on a cold morning, January 26th. It was about 14 degrees outside. Gabrielle, who was a nurse prior to all of this, she had a five-month-old son with Rock. Rock hated him, called him an evil child, the mark of the devil. He would constantly beat him, saying he was beating the devil out of him. So Gabrielle, to spare him from a life of torture and pain, decided to lay him in a wheelbarrow and leave him outside in the freezing cold. He died from the cold. His eyelids were frozen shut. Rock was also essaying the kids. I mean, essay in this cult was rampant. It was really, really bad. I guess Gabrielle genuinely thought that she was saving her kid from a life of torture. Rock was absolutely brutal with the kids. When he was drunk, he would just grab his own babies, 
hold them over open fire, he wouldn't even be staring at the baby. He would stare at their mothers, his wives' faces. And he thought it was hilarious the way that they would cry and beg him to not hurt their own child, but to hurt each other's child. Really pitting them up against one another. Other times he would pick the kids up, press them up against a tree, nail their clothes to that tree and tell the other members to pelt them with stones or torture them by stabbing them like next to the tree bark. So they're not getting stabbed, but it's psychologically very damaging. He would even turn the kids against their own mothers. Once he got older, he started forcing the kids to beat their own mothers to show that they had no allegiance to anyone but him. The kids lack sleep, food, education, I mean, sanitation, everything. Their teeth were decaying. Mental health was not a thing. They were not doing well at all. So this is, you know, the kids that he liked. Imagine what he did to the kids he didn't like. So remember Maurice, this is Jack's wife, the one who cut off her pinky toe. She decides, I can't do this anymore. She had been alienated from her own husband for a year now. I think that she realized that he's not coming back to her. So she leaves. Rock only agreed to let her leave without killing her if she left her eldest daughter to marry him. And so she stayed behind to be Rock's next wife and Maurice fled the cabin. She took two of her younger kids with her. She was finally free after eight years of being there and she would spend months recovering before finding the courage to go to the police. But by then, it would be too late. Another person would die and an arm would be amputated. So Rock felt like he's losing control of this group. He starts lashing out even more. He, for whatever reason, woke up one day super angry at Claude, forced him to wear an elastic band around his private parts, like triple tied. Claude was forced to sleep with it on, and because of the severe lack of blood flow, it caused permanent damage to his private parts. By the morning, one of his parts was swollen to the size of an orange. Rock then cut it open, dug his fingers around in there, found the infected orange-sized part of his private parts, and physically removed it, like ripped it out of him. He then cauterized the wound with a hot iron, basically closed the wound shut with a hot iron, and he just felt this thrill, this genuine excitement of surgery. He loved surgery. He then proudly lifted the private part in the air and told his oldest son to go put it in his trophy shed. This is when the two oldest sons with Francine decided to leave for good. And now, with his sons leaving, he's even more stressed out, okay? So for whatever reason, not that there ever is a reason to be violent with another person, but at this point, he really doesn't even try justifying his actions. He just wants to hurt more people. He throws a hunting knife at Giselle, his wife. It penetrates her thigh, gives her a gash on her leg that's three inches deep. There is blood dripping down her leg. And when he wakes up from his little nap, because right after doing this, he drank his beer and rolled over, fell asleep. When he wakes up, Giselle's leg is completely swollen and he's so excited because this is another chance to play surgeon. He walks up to her, presses up against her leg, causing the wound to burst open again because it had clotted itself. And he starts pouring cups of hot steaming water into the injury, effectively cooking her flesh. He started poking into her injury with a hot iron. And she said when he did his doctor work, he was just like a butcher. He was very rough with his patients and the pain was so unbearable. The pain was so intense. I couldn't stop screaming. I passed out twice. And when I came to, I felt like I couldn't even recognize the people around me. I felt like I was in a concentration camp. In a week, the wound would grow infected and 
this is when Rock is like, okay, I got to do something about this infection. He gathers salt and olive oil and starts massaging inside the wound for two hours with salt and olive oil. <sighs> yeah, eventually the wound would heal painfully and slowly and Giselle would use that as a chance to run. But she still came back. She said that she was so scared she ran to a woman's shelter. At one point she ran to her brother's house, but ultimately she believed that this is where she belonged and this is what God would want for her. So Rock kept going. He picked up a torch, held it up against Josie, another one of his wives. She had severe burns on her back that would never heal, and they were bubbling and boiling. Then one of his other wives, Nicole, gave birth to their child. And that day, the day that she gave birth, he put the torch up to her stomach, completely burning her. Nicole was heavily victimized every time she was pregnant. The torch happened during her most recent pregnancy. But prior to that, when she was three months pregnant, he beat her so hard she lost her baby. He also aimed a gun at Nicole, shot her in the shoulder. In a fit of anger, he also kicked his other wife, Giselle, with steel-toed boots, broke her ribs. Other times, he would beat his members with an axe or just walk up to them, grab a fistful of hair, and he wouldn't stop pulling until he ripped out a whole, like, chunk of their scalp. Cloud got a big clunk of that violence. He was one of the few men left. And so Rock broke every single one of his toes, one by one, by hand. So it took a while, and it wasn't a clean break. He took broken glass to slice up his arm up and down. He used a plier to pull out 11 of Cloud's teeth, forced Cloud to sit on a chair and grabbed a sledgehammer and forced his wife to shatter his knees. He dangled Cloud from the ceiling and would have just left him there for hours. And at one point, he would have the wife stand under him and pluck out every single bit of body hair one by one until he was bald by hand. He beat one of Cloud's favorite horses to death and then ordered Cloud to burn the animal's body. He pointed a gun at Cloud and shot him. Meanwhile, Gabrielle and Giselle, they were tortured. He would use pliers to squeeze their chest until they bled. One time, Rock placed Gabrielle's hand between lock pliers and squeezed until it broke. He used the same pliers to rip out eight of her teeth and even some of her jawbone at one point because he was pissed off at her. Yeah. He also smashed her thigh with a sledgehammer. He also started getting a bit more inspired by medical gadgets. He started using needles, filling them with whatever unloaded liquid that he wanted, and he would inject them into his followers. But after injecting them, he would purposefully twist the needle so the tip would break off, and it would be lodged into their skin. He started using torches to burn his wife's private parts and chest. He forced one member to use wire cutters to slice off Gabrielle's left pinky. And then one day, after a very long day of hard labor, Gabrielle said she looked down and saw something peeking out of her private part. She realized that her uterus had prolapsed, which means an internal body organ is now bulging outside. Usually it's down there and it's from weak supportive muscles. It was now sticking three inches out of her body. So she freaked out, went to Rock, and he literally punched her in the uterus to try and force it back in. When that didn't work, he used a string to tie it around her uterus to try and pull it out. But when that didn't work, he just stuck a wooden cone up there so it basically would work like a bottle cap and keep everything in. He broke another wife's cheekbone when she was six months pregnant. He would punch members in the neck until they passed out. And then one day, 32-year-old Solange, arguably Rock's favorite wife, woke up one day for an ache in her stomach. 
It could have been a number of things since they were starved and malnourished, but Rock was adamant that it was a liver issue, and the only way to be fixed is if he operated. He popped open some beers, chugged them, and then had his other wives dress him in this red velvet robe and a thin gold crown. He got everyone to gather around, laid Solange down on the table, started choking her, not for the operation, literally just because he wanted to. So it wasn't so that he could knock her out or anything, just choked her for a little bit before. And then paused to put on jewelry. Then he looked down at his wife and said, are you ready? I'm going to treat you tonight. So she's unclothed on the table. He tries to forcibly give her an enema, which is a medical procedure where you take a tube and insert it down there to help you get rid of any poop, like to basically wash it out, flushing it out of your system. And he usually it utilizes salt water, but he decided to use a combination of water, oil and molasses. So think like honey, which is arguably the worst thing to use in an enema. He spent a good 30 minutes trying to get that to work. He was not nice or gentle. Solange was in a lot of pain. Once it was kind of inserted, he just starts punching her stomach viciously. Then he placed a tube down her throat and starts telling the other members to either blow or suck onto the tube, depending on what he was doing. When that wasn't satisfying, he grabbed a knife and sliced under her ribs. It was a five-inch gash vertically down her side. And he just reached in and grabbed whatever he could find. And he pulled out four inches of what is presumed to be her intestines. They said that Solange was super calm during all of this and didn't even cry out. He told her, it's okay, there, there, you're going to be all right. He had other members stitch her back up and took his part to the trophy shed. Solange would have no anesthetic and no pain reliever. Gabrielle said she, her belly was open and here she was in a state of calm and peace and that really impressed her. So after Solange is stitched up, he orders someone to draw Solange a hot bath filled with herbs and cherries, which just makes her feel so much worse. So he changes his mind and makes it a cold ice bath. So that night, Solange was tended to by a few of the other wives. She was bleeding out, and by the morning, she would be dead. Her last words to them were, well, I never thought I would suffer that much in my life. Doctors would later state that she passed from a hole and leak in her intestines, and it would have been very painful. Rock was devastated that Solange died, which I know, okay, it's shocking because he causes her death and turns around acting like he's the ultimate victim in all of this. Solange was his favorite wife. The member said that he fell into this deep depression after this and he tries to get one of the members to shoot him. He claims to have taken 400 Tylenol, which I highly doubt. He claims to have tried drowning himself. I just don't think that he's the type of guy to want to exit. I feel like he would want to hold on and stay for as long as he possibly can even though he's a menace to society and nobody wants him but he said that as he was attempting to drown god came to him and said you were pregnant with solange yeah okay so side note this is not the first time rock has said something very bizarre at one point he would go on these rants about how eating one's own male offspring is the ultimate religious experience So Rock told the group that he's having these dreams that Solange is inside of his body and he was going to give her her reverse birth. He was going around all day saying, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. He had his followers dig up Solange's body and instructed the other wives to cut her up, pour vinegar all over her remains to get rid of any worms. Then he had other members drill a hole into her skull so that he could make love to her brain and believed that his output would be her reincarnation. He even encouraged his other male members, well, just one, to do it because they didn't have 
they were castrated. So when that didn't work, Giselle comforted Rock and told him that Solange would want to have been cremated. He starts digging for bones and vital organs that he wants to keep before she's cremated. He kept her rib bone in a leather wrap that he wore around his neck. He kept some other parts in a jar filled with olive oil and it said that, like her kidney and uterus, and it said that he would make love to that jar consistently. And a lot of followers were starting to kind of wake up to the crazy that was rock around this point. Gabrielle wanted to leave. She tried a few times, but she told her brother, you know, she was so scared of rock. But at the same time, she didn't think that she could live without him. One day, rock got drunk again. And at this point, a lot of the followers, they would run off into the woods every time he got drunk so that they could just hide because drunk means violence. And many of them fled. Gabrielle got stuck. She didn't flee fast enough. And now she's watching him, hoping that he doesn't pick on her. Well, he did. He remembered that Gabrielle had a stiff pinky and he tells her, come sit on the kitchen table. He pats the table, like put your hand down here, palm face down. It's gotta be okay. She puts her hand down on the table. He stabs a knife into her hand in the middle, soon effectively nailing her hand to the kitchen table. There's blood gushing out from her wound, but Rock doesn't do anything. He casually goes over and starts drinking some more. For about 45 minutes, Gabrielle is sitting there, hand drilled to the table, essentially, and cannot move. She's in excruciating pain. She's in shock. She's forcing herself to not pass out. And when Rock turns the attention back on her, her arm starts to turn blue. And he said, that's not looking so good, is it? He grabs another knife. This is like a carpet knife. So it's very similar to a box cutter, but with a tilted handle. It's not going to be the sharpest or the most effective knife. He grabs that knife in one hand, another hand to hold down her shoulder. And he starts pressing the carpet knife between her elbow and shoulder. So like middle of her upper arm. And he just starts carving. And it's a good utility knife, but a carpet knife, from what I can tell, is not equipped to handle cutting through tissue and muscle and bone. And that's what he's trying to do. He starts carving through the different layers and he keeps getting down to her bone and he keeps trying to cut, but it's not working. And he's getting frustrated. He does this for hours. Gabrielle, mind you, is awake the whole time. She's watching this being done so close to her face. Rock calls one of the other wives to come over and they start just digging their hands in there trying to pull bone out. And it's still not working. So they undo the hunting knife from her hand, pick her up, lay her down on the floor. They grab a blunt meat cleaver and completely hammers off her bone, amputating her arm for no reason. Gabrielle did not cry. She said she did not even yell. She said she felt no fear watching this happen. It took hours and she just heard God telling her that God was with her and that God loves her. And this is when she believes reality broke. Because she's thinking, wait, God is with me right now. And God just told me I love you. And people wouldn't do this to people that they love. Mm. And God was the only one that made her feel safe and calm in that moment. So afterwards, she had a moment. Yeah, where she was thinking, this man is claiming to be God, but he seems like the devil. And she said, believe me, I was sure that night that I was certain I was going to die. So she left for a woman's shelter the next day, but Jack convinced her to come back and that rock had changed. She went back and they saw that the tissue on her arm was dying. 
because it wasn't being treated. So Rock grabbed a pair of scissors and started cutting out the tainted oh. parts. He also decided to slice off a chunk of her breast and beat her on the head with an axe. He forced her to go out to eat with him that day after doing all of that at a local Chinese restaurant. And the whole purpose was to just humiliate her and force her to show off her arm and scare the waitresses. Gabrielle was beaten, abused, humiliated, and eventually she ran out out of the cabin into the woods. She didn't have the energy to go find help because it was very isolated. She just laid in the bushes for two days in pain. And the only reason she went back to the cabin was she realized insects had laid eggs in her brain, like her head injury. She walked back to the cabin and Rock was drunk again. He heated up a torch, took a metal plate till it was blazing hot and pressed it up against Gabrielle's arm where he amputated her. The worst part was he was so drunk that he kept dropping the heat metal plate and it just kept dropping all over Gabrielle's body. Finally, Gabrielle was able to escape from the group and made it to a hospital. But she was still protecting Rock. She tried to make up a story about how her arm had been cut off. The hospital did not care. They immediately called the police to investigate. And then she would finally open up to the horrors inside of Ant Hill. By the time the police get to the cult, the cabin is empty. Everyone had fled. It took six weeks to finally locate Rock. He was arrested the same day that Giselle told authorities about Solange's death. Rock and fellow members pled guilty to all charges against them regarding Gabrielle's amputation. Rock went to trial for the second degree murder of Solange. He pled guilty and received life in prison, but he would be eligible for parole within six years. What? Which he would never get. But there was just a lingering question even after all of this that the public wanted to know, which was, did Rock believe what he preached? And did all of his followers believe him like wholeheartedly? Was there not even a single moment where they went... Um, maybe this guy is full of shit. We don't really know. What's crazy is Rock wasn't even that powerful of a person outside of his cult. For example, he was visiting Utah one time and he managed to get a $75 ticket in the United States. When he was handed a ticket from the cops, he walked away with a squishing sound coming from him because he had peed himself. He was not powerful or cocky to the outside world, but to his group, he was the all-powerful leader that could do no wrong. As for Rock Terrio, a lot of past members believed that he genuinely was delusional, that he genuinely believed he was some sort of prophet, some sort of gifted surgeon. Even after his arrest, three members remained devoted to him. They moved into apartments near the prison and scheduled as many conjugal visits as they could. So they were still sleeping with him while he was in jail. These three women would go on to have four more children with him while he was in prison. They were all immediately taken by CPS and given up for adoption. And Rock liked being in jail. He told the parole board that he wanted to stay in jail because he was scared for his safety outside. Which again, raging victim complex, okay? Like, he was really busy in jail as well. He tried to write a book, tried to sell artwork to a website called murderauction.com, which is exactly what it sounds like. They auction off art and other works from killers. It's definitely a controversial website. Canada stopped the release of Rock's work because of the outrage it was causing. So he's busy. His life in prison was honestly okay. A lot of the guards really liked him. Despite being one of Canada's most infamous and despicable criminals, they said that he was charming. And then it's debated whether or not this could have been stopped, whether or not the cult could have been stopped. We don't know, you know? I think that the media at the time was also in a phase where they were praising anything that was different And yeah, I don't know. It was just strange. People were just not calling it out for what it was. I think people were very careful to be like, we don't really know. So let's let them do what they want. 
They're not hurting anyone, right? We don't know. February 26, 2011, which is the same month that Rock predicted a second coming like a decade ago, well, many decades ago, that the world was going to end. Well, February 26, 2011, the world did end for Rock Terrio. A 60-year-old man, Matthew McDonald, walked into 63-year-old Rock Terrio's cell and walked out with a bloody shiv. He stabbed Rock in the neck until he died, and somehow Rock's healing abilities did not save him. Matthew walked straight up to a guard, handed him the bloody shiv, and said, The piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I've sliced him up. Matthew was already a convicted killer. He killed a taxi driver. He was sentenced to life in prison. And he had another record. So he wasn't getting out. So I guess he just thought, why not kill Rock? But why? So there are a lot of people that praise Matthew for this because afterwards he said he killed Rock because he was sick of hearing everything that he had done to women and children. So he figured, why not just take him out? Also, on top of that, he just found him extremely annoying. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even in prison, there's hierarchies, right? So I feel like these days, we know what happened with Jonestown. We know what happened with Manson. But Rock Terrio is one of the lesser known cult leaders. But his impact on Canada was huge. His sons, I mean, just if he had 40 members, think of all the people that are family members or relatives or friends with these 40 members. The impact was wide. The kids, um, Rock Jr. and Francois, they would go on to write a book. They called their dad a shark, a shark that just needed to see blood. They said that they were scared every moment that they were in that cult. Gabrielle said that she was so lost when she met Rock. She was just looking for someone to find her. She was a nurse, but just nothing in life was clicking. Then she met Rock and the way that he looked at her, it looked like he was looking inside of her. And then when they had held hands for the first time, she said it was kind of like a burning sensation, like a magnetism she couldn't pull away. She had never met someone with as much charisma as him. Gabrielle would later go on to write a book about her experiences in Ant Hill, Alliance of the Sheep. I could not get my hands on an English version of it because I believe it is in French. And yeah, I can't find it anywhere. If you guys can find it, please let me know. I'd be so intrigued. But she said it was very therapeutic to write. And the end message of the book is, happiness is not out there. You have to find it in yourself. And everything is already given to you to fulfill yourself. She said, there's always a bit of hope in the darkness and we have to hope for that to get out of the darkness because there is always light at the end of the tunnel of our human misery. Always, never give up. Never, never, never give up. And that is the story of the Antel Kids. It's probably one of the most gruesome ones. Um, I will just say, I'm not sure if this is gonna get approved through YouTube. We might do a shortened version of it on here. Um, Maybe check out Spotify where the uncensored video will be. Or if you just want the audio, it's available on all platforms. Please be safe. And I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.